What's up? My name is Matt Issa, here to bring you episode five of Blazing the Trail. On this episode, we'll be spotlighting everyone's favorite, what have he played in today's NBA candidate, Andre Kirilenko. Please remember that the article I wrote on Kirilenko is also live as we speak, and you can find the link to that and parts one through four of this series in the description below, or just by visiting basketballnews.com. On this episode, we'll be doing something a little bit different from the usual formula. First, we'll chat with 18-year NBA coach Gordon Chiesa, who spent every season on the bench next to the legendary Jerry Sloan from 1989 to 2005. Then after that, we do a little thought exercise and bring on basketball historian and my good friend Cody Hodek of the Thinking Basketball podcast and YouTube channel to discuss where Kirilenko ranked in the league hierarchy during his peak season in 2003-2004. Hint, it's a lot higher than you might think. Again, please be sure to check out the article I wrote on Kirilenko. Along with the insights I got from Coach and Cody, it also has quotes from my interviews with Coach Tyrone Corbin, Coach Michael Ruffin, and Jazz Radio commentator David Locke. Also, both Coach Corbin and Coach Ruffin's full-length interviews will be featured on a bonus episode later on in the series. Anyway, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you turn to for podcast consumption. We have so many more great interviews with players and coaches coming up, and I just really don't want you guys to miss out. Next week, we have an absolute murderer's row of guests as both Coach George Carl and Mr. Sonic himself, Nate McMillan, join me to chat about the Rain Man, Sean Kemp. So yeah, do the thing, subscribe, and stay tuned. Without further ado, I give you Blazing the Trail. So just to, to get down to things, get started, just from your recollection, what, what popped the most about Andre Kirilenko's game during the time you spent with him? Well, the first thing is that we drafted him back in 1999 with Utah Jazz. People forget, as a reference point, he was the 24th pick of the draft that year. And he wasn't even Jazz's first pick in the draft in 1999. The Jazz drafted a kid named uh, Quincy Lewis at number 19. Mm-hmm. So how, how it just shows you about the draft and about Karolinko with the 24th pick of the draft uh, a, a, via Russia, a Russian player, was only 18 years old. So Scott Layton at that time was general manager of the, of the Jazz. He read it right where he took a, he took a chance on Karolinko and the, and the rest is history. So again, the 24th pick of the draft. I did, I coached him for the first uh, uh, four years, first five years of his. I'm sorry, pardon me. The first four years of the career, because mm-hmm. remember he didn't come over to the states until uh, 2000 years later. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So he stayed there. You know, he played for um, he played for Seska in Moscow for two years. Mm-hmm. So. Again, let's fast forward now. This generation, you know, a lot of a lot of times, you know, they call it a draft and stash. You know, where a, 
a lot of the NBA teams will, will draft a player and they'll stash them overseas for two years. We did that, you know, uh, uh, 1999. What's that? 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a it's a very valuable thing. I remember about him the most is that he's actually, you know, the defensive playmaker. So a lot of times in basketball, we talk about Matt, about offensive playmakers, right? Yes. Fuel series, you know, kick it out to the corner three, you know, a law pass option, you penetrate. He's the opposite, Karolinko. Defensive playmaker, meaning what? Disruptor. Mm-hmm. Rover, both on off ball. So what made Karolinko brilliant was that uh, I call it early eyes is that he could read plays before it happens. And he had, and also he had this um, swiveled head where hopefully we told, we, we, he had it naturally. I like to think that we enhanced it as far as, you know, moving his head, being, and seeing, and his eye, make, his eye seeing the play early and that he was able to, what, be cat quick and jump into passing lanes to steal the ball or block a shot or pickpocket somebody when he's an on-ball defender. So what, what he did is that so the early eyes, swivel head, uh, I call it feet navigator, mm-hmm. where his footwork was superior defensively, where he get, get in that passing lane yes. and then dart in it and steal the ball. And the last part about that, I like guess, always, is that um, uh, his flick hands. Again, without being so technical, a flick. No, please, please be technical, please. I lo- I love it. Please be as technical as possible. All right. So a flick hand would be Matt is when um, I'm guarding. You're the dribbler, and mm-hmm. I'm guarding you. All right. I'm in my stance. I'm moving my feet, and you're making a either angle dribble or a, a what we call a strike dribble. Mm-hmm. But I keep moving my feet, and I get I get my flick hand. We call it hand in on ball side. When, when I was in jazz best, we were fanatical about it, and Carolyn go mastered this at least. So hand on ball side means my defensive hand is on is on ball side on your dribble, and I'm flicking my hand up towards your ball without being uh, without uh, losing my balance to make your dribble now more lateral versus what striking. So it's more protective versus what more uh, downhill coming at me. You want them to go east to west instead of That's north to exactly south. Exactly right, sideways, right yes. versus what attack my shoulder and go by me. Mm-hmm. So again, these are all skills that everybody should have defensively, but it's hard work mm-hmm. and it's discipline, but it's activity. And Karolinko, he mastered it. He was tremendous defensive uh, def- uh, playmaker, again, both on, off ball. So again, he could block shots, he could steal the ball, and he could what, pickpocket your dribble. And that's in that. So he, his technique was really um, fundamentally, but what, instinctive. That's the best of both worlds, Matt, where you're fundamentally sound, but it's instincts. You know, again, a lot of times mm-hmm. you, you, you can do drills and teach players, but it has to be instinctive to, you know, again, early eyes to make plays either around the ball or off the ball. Yeah, Coach, you just said a lot of a lot of really good things. Um, you can't see me right now, but I'm smiling because I love hearing this stuff. Uh, I talked to Coach Ruffin, Coach Michael Ruffin, obviously he was a player so, during uh, yeah. when you were coaching the Jazz for a little uh-huh. while. And the, the first thing that he said to me when I asked him a similar question was, like you said, just the, the conviction, the decisiveness. He was not hesitant at all. He, you saw that with his offense too, with his passing. He was, he was like the, you know, they talk a lot about the 0.5 rule today, whatever, do something right. in 0.5 seconds. Yeah. He was like yes. the king of that, the king of getting that ball out in 0.5 seconds. Coach, I want to ask you something. Do you watch, um, cause this reminds me of the analogy I've kind of been working with, with Karolinko. Do you watch baseball at all? 
Yes. Okay, so you, you're familiar with the term five-tool outfielder? Yes. yes. So I call Kirilenko the five-tool defender. So instead of hitting, I'd say he's a good man defender, right? I say instead of hitting for power, he's a versatile man defender. Instead of fielding, I would say he's a great off-ball rover, like you said. Instead of speed, he has – well, he does have speed. He has an incredible motor. I want to, I want to talk about that in a second. But incredible motor, never gets tired. It feels like he's always running around. And then lastly, instead of throwing, he swats shots back. He's like omitting shots from, you know, going towards the rim, like you said. So I, I call him the five-tool outfielder. You, you like that one? I mean the five-tool defender. Much, absolutely, yeah. Baseball being like hit, throw, speed, yeah. holding, power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, very much. You, you like that analogy? I'm point about that. Now, Coach, I want to ask really quickly. I mentioned one thing. I want to double-check this with you, fact-check it with you. Do you think – Coach Ruffin said he thought he could. Do you think he could have guarded all five positions on the court? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the answer is absolutely. Especially now, Matt, in this day and age, era where you know the stretch bigs, you know, there's very few people that just have straight brute force power to what you know back you down in the lane. Now, some it's, it's, some people do it. Only a few people do it, but it's not really the norm. And so, so Carol again. So Matt, just say, um, okay, just say uh, Carolinka was guarding. Let's go uh, for analogy. Let me see my rosters here. As far as an old school uh, back to the bay. Okay, let's go. Let's go Al Horford. Mm-hmm. Someone like Al Horford. Everybody knows who he is. He's a good player. Just say Al Horford was backing down Karolinko with that slick hand. Karolinko would make uh, Al Horford type people be more protective versus what? Drop that shoulder mm-hmm. in the lane. That's why it's so important that, you know, be, to, to guard all five positions, but a lot of it's based on what? Again, technique. Because tech, technique's everything. See, the, the lesser players, they don't care about playing defense, so it's, it's irrelevant. But the good players, they, they want to play defense, but they don't want to get in early foul trouble. Mm-hmm. So it's that unbelievable in a game in a game where how can I play sound defense both on off ball but not be in early foul trouble where, where I have to sit then or offensively I'm not as aggressive now because I'm afraid to attack the paint and charge somebody. And so that's why it's so important to start the game mentally that you're ready what, to guard with technique. Coach, you know who I know? With, with Karolinko. You know who I feel like you're thinking about right now? You know, just judging by your experience, somebody who reminded me of that a lot, Carl Malone, whereas he's not, like you said, he's got a, a huge load on offense. He carried a huge load for you guys. And then on defense, he wasn't – People think he was like incredibly like vertical. He was more a grounded game, right? That's why he lasted so long. So he popularized, you know, if you remember that swipe down move, he would swipe down on the Absolutely. ball as the defender was getting up. So he would get it at their waist as opposed to trying to contest their shot at their apex. But that reminds me a lot of what you're talking about right here. And Karolinko had what you're saying is those similar that similar like institutional knowledge of the game where he could kind of game the system when he had – when he was at a disadvantage, what his one disadvantage I probably would say is his strength, right, on defense. Yeah, up, yeah, upper body. Yeah. Up, I actually call it chest density. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, uh, guys like long and lanky, mm-hmm. like angular, you know, angular hips, angular type body. The, uh, most times, your upper body um, isn't as wide, you know, mm-hmm. wide. So which means that when a guy, when a good player backs you down with strength, then suddenly you're you mono a mono, chest on chest. Eventually, when he backs you down without dropping the shoulder for an offensive foul, that you're going to give some give up some what balance. Mm-hmm. And that split second of being off balance, what good players do offensively, they what uh, they shoot in the open window. We call it. Yes. So when you back somebody down, and the guy's playing a hard though defensively, 
like body on body, he he off balance now. That creates the loop, that uh, that split second shot window to walk with jump hook, mm-hmm. you know, turn around jump shot, up and unders, whatever it might be. Again, Matt, it's it's clear, really classic. I mean, these are so fundamental things. However, they're they're so defined and with detail. Even you know, this this separates a lot of average players, good players. See, as a coach, our job as a coach in the NBA, every level though, is what to hide a player's non-strengths. And the better teams do that, where they hide a player's non-strengths and they try to attempt to limit um, position-wise, where he doesn't get in trouble. Where no, where suddenly, you know, a lot of times, Matt, this, this era, they switch one through five defensively. Yes, that's, that sounds good in theory. However, if a smart player will say again, Al Horford gets the guy in the post um, over a guy that's much smaller, he becomes a one 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 dribble pull up over the top of the defense because the guy's too small to guard him. You know, don't play around with the guy; just one bounce, elevate. Keep, keep it very simple. Mm-hmm. So Karolinka was able to guard. All five positions. And also, again, Matt, most, just generally speaking, now let's paint the canvas with one, one, one broad stroke. Most European kids from the Baltic states, whether it's Mother Russia or whether it's Lithuania, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, Montenegro, old Yugoslavia, most of those kids have innate toughness. It just, it's part of the uh, culture of living in those those uh, countries. Mm-hmm. So Karolinko, what he lacked in physical strength, he made up in technique, but also just generally speaking, is that his overall toughness, like the toughness, you know, again, growing up in Russia, etc. you know, all parts of it. So I've observed a lot of people from those Baltic countries and they have innate toughness. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That is a, it seems to be a common theme of just the developmental um, pathway those players took during that time. Now, Coach, I want to ask you this. We've talked a lot about versatility, a lot of the different things you can do on the defensive end of the side of the ball. And the reason, one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because, you know, you've been in the thick of things in deep playoff series. You know what it's like to be in the trenches. You know what it's like to play the chess match. And I think of Kirilenko in terms of chess as like the knight on the chessboard. He's not the best piece, but he's the most versatile piece by far. And what can you explain to people who might listen to this? What, how, how, how helpful it is, how helpful is it as a coach to have that sort of versatility on your side when you're in like a war like that, a deep playoff series? Oh, it's, it's vital because mm-hmm. what happens is that it's an extra, it's an extra uh, defensive player. In other words, it could be both on off ball. And so a lot of times, you know, people when they're off ball, especially in a playoff game, but for some bad reason, they're not as engaged mentally. But Karolinko always was. Mm-hmm. When he was off ball, he was trying to what, figure out where the next pass is coming, he'd jump in that passing lane and be able to uh, guard. Also, as a help defender, if someone gets by uh, initially, but being a shot blocker and or shot rejector, mm-hmm. he also – saved a lot of baskets uh, up in the air, not even at the rim, but up in the air. And so he saved a lot of teammates of, 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 um, of players um, scoring on, uh, on our team by being, being ready to what? Make a basketball defensive play. And, you know, what made Karolinko also interesting, Matt, especially in playoff games where you used to have chase down blocks, I call it, where suddenly we'll say, um, let's go, make him, make him a, I say, um, let's go, uh, Terry Porter, for example. Mm-hmm. Yesteryear, 
Portland Trailblazers. It was an arch rival of the Jazz. Yes. Tate gets a steal, and he's going length of the floor, and suddenly Karolinko chases him down and gets a chase down block. And that's absolutely quick because those momentum plays. Instead of, instead of getting a, a, a two points by the by the opposition, he blocks the shot. Now, it's most times when a shot's blocked and a chase down, it's um, I can't explain Murphy's law, but most times the team scores, the team that blocked the shot suddenly is in transition. They'll make an open uh, jumper now, or running leg, or open three. So it's a, it's a four-point play, momentum-wise, in a playoff games. It's absolutely critical. Matt, next part about Karolinko that's never talked about. Uh, he had somebody also, I recall him, uh, rear view mirror blocks, mm-hmm. where suddenly um, he's on, he's a the guy's going to the shooting motion, and maybe he's a help defender. Wasn't even on the ball. But he's in the lane on the guy, and he'll block the shot from the, from the side of, from behind, which is rear view. So besides guarding his own man, chase down blocks, hustle plays, and then what? Around the ball defensively on rear view blocks. Now, the next part about this is that think about Karolinko's body. He had those long coat hanger arms. The condor arms. Yeah, very much. Yeah. So that was a huge factor with those long arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Coach, um, yes. I, w- I want to know, you know, of course, I'm sure you're you're very familiar with the legendary Coach Jerry Sloan. You knew him very well. I want to know. So I know for sure offensively, you know, Jerry Sloan ran a very pattern sequenced offense. It, it required a great deal of uh, regimentation, execution. Execution was huge offensively. Defensively, similar principles, you know, very execution based, right? Karolinko did, he did like to gamble. He was aggressive. He liked to trap. He liked to double team. Do you think that ever bothered Sloan? What did, what did Sloan think of Karolinko? No, he embraced it, absolutely, mm-hmm. because he's a, he's a live wire. Mm-hmm. Again, when you're a defensive playmaker, absolutely. So a lot of, so he's what he, we allow him to play on his instincts, you know, still, still be part of the coverage. Mm-hmm. But again, He's a he's superior, again, speed, length, early eyes, flick hand, superseded any sort of scheme that we had. Mm-hmm. That he, we allowed him to do a, almost like freelance defensively. And that helped us, that helped our team group wise because he can make, he can make defensive plays that other guys could not. And so it was, it was allowable. In fact, Jerry embraced it. And getting back to the late great Jerry Sloan, uh, we came to the beginning. Um, Jerry, now, Jerry and I were together for 16 years. Yeah. I was have a Jerry for the first 16 years we were together. And so we, we saw from day one, you know, I was with him about defensive philosophy. And then back in 1999, when we got Karolinko in the draft, and then two years later, that we, we always talked about that, uh, this guy is defensively is the guy that, that, you know, that he's going to be able to be able to make plays around the ball and off the ball. And that would really help our team defense. And it did. Now, offensively, also, I know it's offensively, but um, I always kid Matt Harpering, you know, I coach all, all these guys. Yeah. So I always kid uh, Matt Harpering that, because uh, in, in jazz basketball, a huge factor was cutting. Yes. Cutting. UCLA cuts, flex cuts, yeah, all that. Absolutely. Exactly. We're maniacal about mm-hmm. it. Maniacal because, again, our job as coaches is to hide a player's non-strengths. So if Karolinka was a 31% three-point shooter, we don't want him on both sides every single time, which is fine. So what we used to do is that, you know, Carolyn, we used to move all our non-shooters, just for lack of a better word, we moved them around. 
so that the defense could never ever say that we're going to not stunt or not guard them mm-hmm. because because they're cutting to the basket. All right, so Karolinko was the was the was the best ever cutter in jazz basketball ever had. He was one. This kid named Shandon Anderson was two. Then I always kept Matt Harping. Matt Harping was three. So Karolinka was absolutely the best cutter I ever had. Because think about it, he's flying, he's flying into the paint area, mm-hmm. either on a direct cut or a backdoor cut out of the corner, and he's so he can catch that ball and quick dunk over to help defense. So he's a great cutter in the game because of his athleticism. He, he had strong hands and he was fearless. Again, he wasn't afraid to be to conviction. Get up in the, air. the conviction, absolutely. Yes. So he's a, he was he was really a, again he was the best cut in jazz basketball. I believe, I believe it. I believe it. I was that helped him tremendously. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, I know this is more about his defense, but you're right. Offensively, he was, and like we said, that conviction it cuts into the cutting and the passing. He was actually really good. I was looking at his free throw rates. He was really good at getting to the line, which is pretty cool because he got to the rim a lot. But um, oh, absolutely, yeah, because he's mm -hmm. aggressive. Again, is that we 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 have a uh, unwritten rule. Mm -hmm. That's a word, Matt. Unwritten. Where I, we say to guys all the time, you miss two open jump shots in a row, okay, it happens. Whether it's bad form, good closeout defense, you didn't uh, stay balanced, whatever. So, but we say, but on the third time when you're wide open, I'm not, we say it's like this to, let's say, Karolinko type players. I'm not saying don't shoot it. I'm just saying what? Make a basketball play. Meaning what? Catch and go drive into what? A pull up mm-hmm. jump shot, maybe a pass off. And Karolinko, really mastered that where for some reason if he missed two open shots in a row usually the third time he'd what catch and go drive mm-hmm. and make a play what's the play matt i don't know don't know what the play's going to be but it's, it's a instead of what sitting on your jump shot because you're saying philosophically getting myself going in the game my own jump shot supersedes us scoring a basket offensively my teammates yeah no i've fallen into this like rabbit hole this is like kind of an aside but as i'm learning to understand the context of what Kirilenko was doing, you know, of course, I had to learn more about the Sloan's offense and stuff. And it's really dawned on me. Obviously, it's patterned. It's it's sequential. It's, you know, there's it's very regimented. But also, you need to be able to, the players in that system need to be able to make, like, razor-sharp reads. Like, you have to be incredibly high IQ to kind of function in that system. And Kirilenko functioned in it really well. I mean, in the, you're, when he was on the floor, offensively, the team was a better offense during those years. Very much. He played, again, he, he played for the Jazz for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And he had, a, he, he had that all-star season back in 2004. Yeah. And uh, that's when John and Carl, uh, uh, John retired and Carl went to the Lakers for the, for the last year of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Karolinko was the heir apparent, became an all-star. And then later, and then two years later, the Jazz drafted Darren Williams. And then, then um, Boozer came in the summer of 2004 Court. and mimicked mm-hmm. And those four guys create the next Jazz wave of basketball after John and Carl, where the Jazz got to the conference finals, you know, in 2007. And those guys had a, those guys had a good run again. Yeah. Now you mentioned, I, this was exactly where I wanted to go next. The 2003-2004 uh, season, Frank Hughes, I believe it was, the ESPN writer, he wrote an yeah. article at the beginning of the year. Yeah, you guys were supposed yeah. to win nine games, I believe. You guys, yes. You guys end up winning 42. Am I correct? 42. 42. And, and Matt, add to that. So mm-hmm. and that was the year where we, we played uh, unbelievable, incredibly hard in together. And so we got knocked into the playoffs on the eighth first game of the year against the Minnesota Timberwolves. 
So we, we're in the playoffs until the 81st game of the year. And that's when the that's when Kevin Garnett was in his prime. Mm-hmm. And Sam Cassell, Wally Serbiak, they really had a good team, the T-Wolves. And that team was that. And Jerry Sloan was voted the coach of the year that year um, by the sporting news. So it's all running. Jerry's never coach of the year uh, ever voted by um, what he called the organizations, you know, the NBA.com, et cetera. But he was voted that year, the only time ever coach of the year. Which just shows you that that uh, when you have, when you have a really consistent team, people overlook you. So it'd be like uh, right now in this generation, it'd be uh, Greg Popovich. It'd be also like Eric Spolster, mm-hmm. guys like that, where they're always good. I know Spurs the last two years. I know because they're rebuilding. I get it. But before that, the Spurs are always good, and so is the Heat. Always good, generally speaking. And those guys, you, you could vote them coach of the year, but they hardly ever get it because they're so consistent. Versus what? A, a turnaround artist where a guy, um, a team has won 18 games and suddenly won 34. That guy may, might be voted coach of the year. He did, a, he did a wonderful job, but doesn't mean the guys that are consistent shouldn't get married also. Oh, 100%. And that's more, you know, we're speaking about like, that's just the psychology of the voters. You know, our mind programs yeah. us, oh, they had this incredible turnaround. And then we try to explain it as we simplify it. Like, okay, it must be one person who's responsible for that, not a bunch of variables. But it's funny you mention the the heat because i do i see a lot of similarities at least and you can speak to this but uh the way like the heat culture how all their players in super great condition condition and then in utah that was a similar thing where it's like you know malone stocked in the peak of like athletic perfection when it comes to like physical shape and then karolinko of course too he was like because they knock on like guys like um that who like some so for example like uh Kawhi Leonard, great defender, right? Great defender. Absolutely. Historically good defender. But I don't think his motor is that great. And I think when he was asked to carry more of an offensive load, his defense started to decrease a little bit. That's the same with a lot of these great all-time players. Michael Jordan, great defender his early years. And then it kind of decreased a little bit as he was forced to carry more of an offensive load. With Karolinko in that 03-04 season, he carried a big offensive load, maybe not a ball handling load, but scoring load. All, you know, you guys had him make a lot of reads and whatnot. And then defensively, he was still incredible. And he just had this insane motor really quickly. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's come out um, in the last couple of years as we've gotten more metrics, more analytics. Sure. And if you look at basketball references, box plus minus 2003-2004, Karolinko actually has like the third or fourth highest after like Kevin Garnett, Tracy McGrady, I believe. Yes. And I mean – I want to, was he really, you think, one of the 10 best players in the world during that time? Well, again, offensively, he, was, he, was, he's, he wasn't a knockdown shooter. Mm-hmm. So the answer is all-around player. The answer is yes, Okay. all-around. But again, a lot of it's based on, oh, by the way, are you a knockdown shooter? Mm-hmm. And he was not. What he was was that that year he averaged 16.5 points per game. But it's how he got done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like how he did it. He did that what? through the offense and that's a huge factor the ability to what to score the ball through the offense and uh you also Matt we left everything out he really was a good rebounder great rebounder it's that motor he's great rebounder so he can rebound I mean he can rebound in traffic against guys Mm -hmm. that you uh outweighed him by 50 pounds because again that innate you know I'll call it lack of a better word Russian toughness Baltic state toughness Mm -hmm. that he had it and that uh, he could re- he was a tremendous traffic rebounder by his uh, quick burst up in the air, but also when people knocked him off balance, he had the second jump also to get the ball. 
So a lot of times, you know, there's that second, third, multiple efforts uh, in traffic. Now, we're not talking, you know, uh, rebounding, and I call rebounding in a tuxedo. You know, that's when your ball comes to you. It's a perfect world. I mean, the, the better rebounders are ones that can traffic rebound. Contested they, rebounders, they, yep. And they're, they're getting bumped off balance mm-hmm. on almost every play. So, again, Karolinko that year, 2003-04, he was, a, he was an all-star the only time in his career. But he, was, he, was, he had a tremendous all-around year. So, again, you mentioned about Kevin Garnett. So the guys you mentioned ahead of him on the defensive rating, Garnett and uh, Tracy McGrady, Karen Lincoln would be guarding those guys. Mm-hmm. So, again, one through five. The ability to guard a point guard, two guard, um, a, a small forward, um, pack either power forward or stretch forward, you want to say, in an old school, we'll say back to the basket, you know, uh, uh, paint, a paint performer, you know, in the lane. That Karen Lincoln could guard them. And that's what made him unique. But offensively, he was good because every coach wants guys to move without the ball. He mastered it. So yeah. I think about it. Most guys this generation, they want the ball and usually over dribble. Just generally speaking, Karolinko was the opposite. He get the ball and swing the ball and then cut or move without the ball. And that's an unbelievable um, blessing to a, from, a, from a team standpoint and for, and for your floor mates. And, when, and remember, when Matt, when you play without the ball, you're – your teammates respect your game because they see you you know, doing a lot of things by screening, slipping, back cutting. That, that, tells, that tells your teammates on the floor that there's a connectivity, that, that you, you, the ball right now is not in your hands, but you're trying to help someone score, which is absolutely an amazing skill and it's learned, but also it's innate. Yeah, my, my buddy, he, uh, his name's Cody Hodek. And he studied Kirilenko a couple of years ago, pretty in depth. And he ended up calling him the most uh, portable player in NBA history, basically saying like you could put him with any any team construct, and he would probably fit. Like, I mean, you guys look, you get Darren Williams, who's like a he's a not a ball dominant, but he likes to play with the ball. He's a high usage Absolutely. guy, and they played well together because Kirilenko doesn't really need the ball. He's a low maintenance offensive player, and then defensively, he just contributes so much on that end of the court. And he reminds me. And I want to I want to hear what you think on this. It reminds me of two guys. The first one, you know, you know very well. He um, he played a big part in stopping those incredible Jazz teams a couple times. But uh, he reminds me a lot of Scottie Pippen. And you know, you obviously coached against him. What do you, what do you think of that? For good, good analogy, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But Scottie again, Scottie Pippen wasn't a knockdown shooter, mm-hmm. but was a good scorer. But defensively, he was a defensive playmaker. Yeah, he can guard all five positions, Scottie Pippen. And that was Karolinko. Moving without the ball. Playing through Michael Jordan's brilliance, say Karolinko. Playing through Karl Malone's brilliance, Stockton's brilliance. Years later, Bruce's really solid play. And Darren Williams, uh, lack of a better word, solid play also. So the, again, the ability to fit in as far as being the fourth or fifth starter, even though you're an all-star, you don't you value playing without the ball. So Pippen would be, and Pippen had even even had more talent than even Karolinko because just uh, he's made a little, little more stronger, just upper body strength stronger. Now another part that we left out, mm-hmm. Karolinko, floor running defensive, offensively and defensively, mm-hmm. he was actually a tremendous streaker down the floor, offensively. That he run that floor, in jazz pass we call it unknown running. Unknown running is when you get a rebound, whether it's you or your teammate, you pitch it out. We'll say, for lack of a better word, to a guard, usually the point guard, Stockton, Darren Williams. And now you run the floor 
wide, which we call sweeping. You sweep the floor wide, but you're at half court, but you don't know, Matt, the ball's going to come to me within the next, what, two or three seconds, but you do the right thing. Instead of jogging, because you, you feel the ball's not going to come to you, you sweep the floor, you go from the right side to the left side, which is actually called say low to the rim. When you, you, you don't get the ball in transition, you got to sweep the floor, go from one to the other side, and get onto the rim, and then pop out to the opposite corner, opposite wing, based on what is how the defense is playing you. And Karolinko absolutely mastered that, you know, where he mastered the, the, the jazz term unknown running because mm-hmm. he did the right thing offensively to help somebody score. So if you're a teammate and you have the ball and you, you sweep the floor, the back line of defense might watch shift their movement and suddenly guard you more. And that gives what the, 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 the playmaker with the ball, of what a middle driving alley. So by sweeping the floor gives the, ball handler, a middle-of-the-floor driving alley because now the defense is shifting to take away that sweep move. Yeah, and Coach, I just want to say, you know, I don't know if you can tell this, I'm a, I'm a really nerdy, nerdy basketball fan, so hearing all these, like, fun little terms you guys had for this stuff is just making it's making me so happy. I'm soaking up so much. The other guy that I'm going to I'm gonna trust you on this one, I, I don't know if you were in the league when he was still in the league at this point. I don't think so, but you definitely you definitely seen him play. I've watched him play a little bit, so I'm trying to get more tape on him. But he reminds me uh, defensively of Bobby Jones. Karolinko sure, does. I know. Absolutely. Okay. Very much gangly. Bobby Jones. Yeah, sure. I know his game very well. Yes. Yeah, Bobby Jones of the 76ers and, and for, the, and for the, the Carolina Cougars in the ABA was when, yeah, 6'9", it's like Karolinko, 6'9", 230 pounds, gangly, high hips, run the floor, Defensive playmaker, absolutely, both on, off the ball, tremendous traffic rebounder. Also, offensively, plays with play without the ball, and that's a huge skill. It's interesting, Matt. There's a direct correlation that the better you are defensively, and you're basically uh, what I call a, a streak shooter, the more you learn how to play without the ball to what to help your teammates um, offensively. Versus what only being a knockdown shooter and you value you only, you only value shooting you don't value moving out the ball or defensively you're what you're indifferent about it because it's not as important to you. So mm-hmm. Bobby Jones and Scottie Pippen, you're right on about that. That's Karolinko had the exact same type of game. Well, very much. I liken it to like you know you're a chubby kid growing up and you lose weight. You're more you're more apt to stay healthy as an adult because you had to work to to be skinny in the first place as opposed to somebody who's like naturally skinny and they don't have to work for it so then they just get like kind of lazy they don't care about it as much like just how you were saying like if you're a natural spacer in terms of shooting you're you're less apt to develop these other skills like cutting um offensive rebounding quick decision making screening yes screening that's another great one screening that was very important i know in the in the utah the down screens on the Utah oh, Jazz offense, that's what call the partnership of screening. Mm-hmm. So again, we the Jazz system. So it's so unfortunate because the system was really tremendous. Unfortunately, we never best X's uh, and O's of the '90s. Best X's and O's yeah, of the '90s by we, far. Uh, we won uh, sixty games three of the last. We won sixty games three three years out of four. We weren't champions. Mm-hmm. So people always tell me that we're probably the best team in, in forty years that was really in the league. Unfortunately, we never champions because you couldn't beat the world's greatest player of all time 
Michael Jordan with LeBron being second. And so it's unfortunate. Now, with that said, though, the learning point about that is that the partnership of screening was when we de- we demanded players. Your job on a certain you know screening action is to free up the dribbler or free up the cutter. That's your job. There's, there's, no, there's no other gray area, and so we're fanatical about it. So everybody became a screener. Everybody became a cutter. Everybody became a dribbler without being excessive with it. And that's what made Karolinko also and all the other jazz players so unique that they're willing, including the All-Stars. Like Stockton was absolutely a great screener, and so was Carl. Mm-hmm. And so when your best guys are willing to what? Sacrifice their body. And Matt, you know, when, when a lot of times when you see people uh, with moving screens, the, the common mistake was made that your job, either as the cutter or the dribbler, is to take the ball or take my body as a cutter into the screening action versus the screener taking his body into what? The ball. Meaning what? Moving screen. Chicken chick, chicken leg screen. Where you, where you move your body. And so, so much is what? We call it the walk-away slant. You don't accept the screen until you walk away first. And that gives the screener a chance to set the screen. And the last part about that, Matt, is this. Is that pop your feet. If the cutter or the dribbler do not hear the screener pop his feet one two on the ground, do not accept the screen until you hit, until you hear what the pop. Mm-hmm. And so now what that does eliminates what eliminates what many 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 moving screens. Yeah, that, that's fa- that's a fascinating nugget. I didn't really, you know, when you think about moving screens. That is obviously, especially now today, how many ball screens are being set. That right. is something that yeah. you need to have proper. Um, technique with and proper kind of fundamentals to make sure you're not getting those lazy offensive fouls that, you know, of course, every possession, as you know, it matters immensely, not just the ones late in the game. Uh, oh, very much. So, example, mm-hmm. so Matt, so let's go, let's go, clip, let's go, uh, Abatsa Zubats. Yes. Abatsa Zubats, someone like him. He'd be a class example. He's a willing screener. Yes. But he, he must average just, I'm just guesstimating now. I don't know that in front of me the, the metrics and the data, but he probably averages, Matt, 1.3 illegal screens per game by what? Moving screens. Mm-hmm. Because he's keep moving his body into what? The dribbler versus what? Popping those feet. And now it's all on the dribbler or the cutter without the ball to what? Bring bring the screening action in the, into the play versus the screen into what? The ball. Yeah, so it, if I was coaching Zubats, I'd be maniacal about it. Because I, I still I tell to Carl Malone and to Buzo, all those guys, member of court, why would you guys want to waste a foul offensively, but lack of defense. If you're going to foul somebody, it's because you're outnumbered four against one. You took a foul in the game because it was impossible to make a basketball play. So you have to foul a guy. So why would you want to waste a foul on what a legal screen? That, that's a great point, Coach. It's similar to how on defense, you know, the guard relies on the big to call up the coverage. It's the partnership of that to help them kind of defend that screen. Similar on offense where, you know, the, the big is relying on the guard to help Make sure they don't get caught with that moving screen. That that's a very good point, Coach. I, I like that a lot. Now I want to maniacal about it. Yeah. Man. When I say maniacal, mm-hmm. I'm not doing justice to that word. Is that again the jazz system? Remember, we 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 had we had we had elite players, but so many other guys like overachieved. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Howard Isley type. Uh, let's go, uh, Raja Bell. Memino Core was an all-star, you know, a non-jumper. Jaron Collins played in the league for like 12 years, non-jumper. 
I'm leaving out here. But so Matt Harpering, non-jumper, had, had success. Brian Russell had success. Uh, Jeff Hornacek, you know, God bless him, was an all-star, unbelievable player, marginal athletically. These are, these are all these guys that we had, and it's all these little things you and I are discussing right now. Mm-hmm. It, it's not one thing, it's everything. And again, our job as coaches is to hide your non-strengths. Of course, Matt, you can't tell the player that indirectly. What are you talking about? Yo, Gordy, what are you talking about? You know, what do you mean I can't do this? Yo, what do you mean? Right, I get it. I understand it. So it's how you phrase it. You know, phrase it. Mm-hmm. You're being truthful, but you know better than the player because he's not objective. You are. And again, Matt, by the way, it's who you play against, too. So, for example, if Scotty Pippen's guarding me on perimeter and I'm Brian Russell, I said him all the time, do not play with the ball. Because his hand, his hand quickness is really good. You have to make a quick decision either way. Get it, drive it, and go. Get it and shoot it. Or get it and swing it and screen somebody. They get Pip and White off the ball. And so, again, to Brian Russell's credit type people, he listened because he's a good kid. And that he would uh, do the right thing. Thus, he overachieves. So, the second-round pick in 1993, the 45th pick of the draft, has what? A good career. It's a lot of money. Hey, good for you. Yeah, you guys, I agree with you on that. And even, like, your stars, like, you know, Stockton, he was incredible. He was incredible physical shape, but he wasn't like an incredible athlete. Even Malone, you know, he's an incredible stature. He wasn't a, a jumper. He was in his early years. He was quick. But like towards the end, you know, it was a lot of guile, institutional knowledge. Technicality. You guys really maximized your roster for sure. And like it makes me sad because people, they they let one series define a team's legacy. And the playoffs is so much about matchups. You got to be a little bit lucky. There's some shooting variants involved. There's so much more than just being like there's a lot of teams throughout history. And that's a big part of this series. You know, it's a 10 part series just to give you some background. It's 10 part series, about 10 revolutionary players. And one of the players we studied was uh, Steve Nash. And, you know, the, sure. the legacy of those Suns teams where it's like sure. people during that time are like, oh, you can't win with a jump shooting team. But like today you need a jump shooting team to win. It's just people didn't realize at that time that those Suns were a championship caliber team. Your Utah Jazz teams in the 90s were a championship caliber team. It just, you know, not always a championship caliber team gets the NBA title, unfortunately, you know, because there's a lot of variables that go into it. Oh, very much. Mm-hmm. Understatement. So, for example, just say what, sure, could. You spread a narrative. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't Michael Jordan, maybe the Jets beat Olajuwon in that era or beat the Lakers in that era because mm-hmm. it wasn't Jordan. But it was Jordan, the world's greatest player, who did um, did uh, unbelievable, incredible things. Like, incredible. Mm-hmm. You just can't game plan for that. You can't. No matter how much, like, time, how much preparation. There's just certain – the great ones are, like, shot making. I've heard a quote uh, – I think Steve Jones used to used to work in the NBA, sure. covers the league now. Sure. He uh, he has a quote. It's something like, you can't, no matter what, no matter how much scheming you do, no matter how much game playing, no matter pressure preparation, if somebody's going to hit shots like at a ridiculous rate, there's like nothing you can do about it, you know? That is correct. You tip yeah, your hat Kevin to him. Durant right now. Mm-hmm. No, very much like Durant. Durant is impossible to guard mm-hmm. because he has that natural fade jumper. And against which defense, he can go just straight over the top of somebody. Against a guy that's with length, he has a he has a natural fade where he can get that shot against anybody in the whole world, and he's accurate. And so Durant, Durant's like a fifty percent shooter, generally speaking, and a lot of it's based on what it's called, Matt. It's called talent. That's what it's called. And that even though you even though you're up up on his body on his numbers and you're contesting the shot, you're playing really good defense. At that split second, his offensive talent and his gifts super wide. Your sound defense. Mm-hmm. 
Agreed. Again, it's who you play against. As I always say, um, it's who you play against. That's why the college draft or free agency or, or trades, you've got to understand who you play against. Matt, on the, say the Warriors, they'd be the classic example where they really are an amazing team. Kavon, I just described about screening action. You know, I described mm-hmm. Kavon Looney. Yeah. That guy, Kavon Looney, is a huge part of that team to free up Clay, to free up uh, Stefan, to free up Jordan Poole on what? White screening action. So Kavon Looney, you know, they drafted him. And he's a, he's a, he sets that screen and fly, uh, all comes off it is Clay or comes off it is Stefan or Jordan Poole to what? Catch a shoot jump shot. The defense gets confused. Then he slips, he sets the screen and slips into the basket as far as getting him. And Matt, in jazz pass, we call that screen and peak. So I, I pop my feet on perimeter. You come flying off it. But as I pop my feet and you accept my screen, I look over, I peek over my shoulder to see where my man is in the coverage. Is he playing center field? Is he up in the coverage? He's going to switch on it. And now I, 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 I pop, screen, and peek, and now I slip to the basket. Mm-hmm. See, so all things that we teach because again. if your man traps, if your man tra- traps or it shows up on the screen, a long, long arm show on the screen, mm-hmm. it gives him what a slip. Yeah. So again, our job as coaches is to teach players how to score without the ball. Man, coach, you should really you should get into this. Uh, you should get into this writing thing. I feel like you're a lot better at explaining this stuff than me, huh? No, I do this for a living. <laughs> uh, I'm a ringer, you know that. Yeah. I'm a ringer. Yeah. No, again, in this generation, it's irrelevant how much we know as coaches. It's mm-hmm. irrelevant who cares about that. Yeah. It's how you can explain to the team mm-hmm. without over talking to the player. And also in this generation. You know, God bless the kid, the players. Is a very small intention span. So we, as the adults in the room, we have to adjust seats backwards. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I, I'm out of coaching now. I'm 72 years mm-hmm. old, and but I, st- you know, I still talk about basketball every single day. You know, I'm on radio. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I work for ESPN 700 locally here as the NBA insider. Yes, so my radio. Uh, I'm on yes. radio twice a week, and what I've learned about that is that again, it's how you say things. Then get out of it. So when you when you're on the court with the players, it, it, you've got to explain it almost like in sound bites, Matt. Like we'll mm-hmm. say thirty second sound bites, and then demonstrate it, and they get out of it. And and of course you can't get it all in at one time. So when when I was a coach, I'd say to the guys, okay, pop your feet, you know, all of the quick fundamentals, and I say, of course there's other parts of this, but because of, because right now I don't want your body to be stiff, we'll continue. So if you have any questions in your in your head right now, I will answer them uh, tomorrow. Or I'll answer them on the sideline. And what that does, it get, it makes all the players then suddenly not ask questions in a good way. It keeps the flowing. But the initial teaching points, the two three things you could you taught that second, the players can master it and learn and le- learn and master it, and then next day build on it. Yeah, that that reminds me. You mentioned him earlier, but uh, we're getting off topic here. But might as well mention it. Greg Popovich, I've, I've heard him talking like clinics before, and he said like during uh, timeouts, I don't try to make like seven, eight, nine adjustments. You know, there's Correct. get that one, two, three things in. You have a better chance of hammering that in and just saying a bunch of stuff, putting it over their heads. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to win, and you're trying to win. You're trying to do what's most uh, efficient to that. You know, you don't want to write uh, a manifesto on how to play the game of basketball. You want to figure out how to win, how to get your message across to those players. Now, Coach, again, we've kind of we were we got to get back to that Karolinko thing. We've been spending a lot of time in the past, and now I want to look at the present day today. 
who obviously with the great players, you can never have like a one of one, but who in today's game makes you smile a bit because, you know, they remind you of AK-47. Okay. All right. So a player will be Draymond Green. Mm-hmm. That, that's the, the, the usual one. We'll keep, uh, expand on that, please. Also, Grant Williams of the Celts. Yes. Grant Williams, absolutely. Also, Bruce Brown. Mm-hmm. Bruce Brown, used to be on the Nets. He's also really good on-off-ball defender. Also, he hasn't played. We've never have talked about him. Is Ben Simmons? Mm-hmm. Ben Simmons, long. He's lanky. I mean, when when he was engaged uh, mentally, that he what he was a, he's a superior defensive player. Also, Sixers, uh, Batiste Thibel, very good on off ball. Yeah, coach. You know what's interesting? So you you just mentioned a bunch of different guys, and the reason is what I like to think. You know, we've talked this whole time. Karolinko's skills, right? He's, he can cover so much ground. He can play so many different roles. He wears all these different hats on defense. And the way the game has changed today with all the space, he is that body type, that archetype is the quintessential defender in today's game. Everybody wants to draft guys like that. I think that's why we have so many guys like that in the league today. There's two guys, Coach, um, that, that you didn't mention that I also think remind me a lot of them of him they're younger so it's you know it's hard to say what they'll develop into but two guys i got scotty barnes and then the it's funny the jazz just acquired him but i think jared vanderbilt reminds me a lot of ak-47 what do you think of that oh very much yeah. absolutely it's exactly right vanderbilt very much he, that guy's on off ball mm-hmm. on off ball he's got a winning game as a matter of fact let me see let me take my notes out here mm-hmm. when he played you know I used to be director of pro personnel of Memphis Grizzlies yes. yesteryear. Mm-hmm. All right. So I still have the mentality where, you know, I write when I, when I go to, when I go to games, I'm still, lack of a better word, a pro personnel director. Mm-hmm. So I'm not that smart. So I have to write things down and type it out later on in my computer. But I, so with the Vanderbilt, let me just read to you what I, what I, let me read to you what I wrote about him. Let me see on a, 123121. So December, no, New Year's, New Year's Eve. All right, I'm going to read to you that I wrote about him, both offense and defense. Let's first go offense. Small forward hybrid, running enthusiast, savvy bust out dribbler after defensive rebounding, creating baskets in place. Scoring challenge needs a three point shot and middle game. Scores via movement, broken place. Quick accelerator as a screener and roller. Agile, explosive, offensive uh, runner. uh, Offensive traffic rebounder battles hard. He's improving again with a three-point shot. His jumper has a side spin. His jumper has a half side spin, meaning what? His his erratic form, Mm -hmm. too much what on the side versus what? uh, In his shooting pocket. Um, Consistently goes to the offensive glass, especially being spaced out on perimeter. Turnover prone. Deficient as far as passing, passing versus um, aggressive challenge defense. Here we go. Let's go defensively. Angler, length, lanky frame, long arms, pretzel legs. He wise legs of pretzel, which mm-hmm. means what? Eventually, against strength, body on body, he's going to get all balance. Yes. Narrow shoulders. Chest density. Needs, yeah. Needs more muscle density, chest strength. Lively defensive ball retriever. Glides in from perimeter to block shots. Active back tipper in transition. 
early eyes anticipator in and out of the passing lanes. Steelmaker. We continue with everybody here. Steelmaker. Navigate screening action both uh, both both on off ball as far as shoulder leverage. Meaning what? He gets gets through the screening action. Whatever coverage you're in, he can do it. Around the ball in the lane consistently. Consents um, growth ceiling. High. Let's watch his off. Let's watch his off, offensive improvement. Perfect fourth or fifth starter on a fifty-plus win team. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, obviously, like we said, we still need to see him grow a little bit more. He's still young, and it's going to be hard for any player to match. You know what Karolinko was at his peak. We're talking top ten, top fifteen player in the world. But you see what I'm talking about—that skill set, those sure. tools. Sure, Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, either way, Matt, business way, it works cheap. His contract is a is a four point four point two million this year coming up the twenty two twenty three season and next year it's only guaranteed for three hundred thousand excuse me twenty three twenty four the following season only guaranteed three hundred thousand dollars which yikes and if if, they, if the Jazz take him which they will for the second year is that it's only four point uh, four point six million so it's a great contract you're getting a a defensive live wire for under five million dollars. So the Jazz made an absolutely smart acquisition in getting him. I love his game. And he'll improve. He's only 24 years young. He'll improve. Because it seems to me, again, if you play defense, just generally speaking, most times you have a spirit about yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was Karolinko. It's that winning spirit that, again, you can't quantify that as far as the metrics don't tell us anything about about person's what spirit is heart. You feel it on the court. If you're a floor mate, you, you, you love playing with people that want to guard somebody and move without the ball. You, you, those teammates are absolutely in, invaluable. That's fast forwarding. 30 years later, for the rest of your life, you're forever teammates because you value when a guy played in your team, you value what he did to help you win. It's impressive. That's Karolinko. Yeah. Now, coach. Remember, remember Jazz basketball, I was just I know I'm not objective, man. I yes. know I'm not. It's like once a Jazz player, always a Jazz player. Mm-hmm. And that's Karolinko. So now for those listening, Cody is helping me today talk about the player being spotlighted in volume five of Blazing the Trail. One, Andre Kirilenko, the owner of maybe one of the coolest nicknames of all time. AK-47 is pretty sick. Um, but So we're actually going to do something different from the usual pods where it's just me and another person kind of just... Uh, raving about X player, why they're so revolutionary and stuff. And today we're going to go out and kind of try to figure out where Kirilenko was at his peak. And the point of this is when you talk about these like revolutionary guys, the point of them being revolutionary, because I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Cody, I think the things that make winning basketball players today have always made Like they're always the things that have made winning basketball players. We just didn't know it at the time. So we couldn't properly appraise these guys. So they were always as good as we think of them today during their time. We just didn't, the people covering the league at the time just didn't understand it. I really like that analysis of it. I think the one like rule change that changed that a little bit 
is when a legal defense mm-hmm. was still the thing and you like couldn't help off and sort of zone off other guys, there wasn't quite as much roaming around. And I think post that we're starting to see like this value of roaming defensive players. But yeah, the value of being able to fit into a team concept, the value of being able to scale up next to other high level players, the value of being able to play off ball, the value of defense. Like, yeah, you go back in time and and I feel like there are a few players that it's like we kind of missed on this because we we were kind of too uh, blinded by the tough shot making that a player may have displayed. And I think Kirilenko, as we go through some of these names and we talk about who he was better than, who he may have been a little bit not as impactful. I'm not going to say worse than. I'm going to try to avoid saying worse than because I just think that's mean. But um, who he may not have had as much impact as. When we go through that, I think a lot of people will be surprised really just how good he was during that 2003-2004 season, which is what we are um, focusing on today. Famously, I think it was Frank Hughes used to cover the Utah Jazz for ESPN he said that the Jazz would win like 13 games that season. They ended up winning like 40 or 42 games. And a lot of people credit that to Andre Kirilenko and just some of the things he was doing on both ends of the court. You, of course, the reason I brought you on specifically, were like, I think you're probably the first person, maybe the only person, honestly, to go in depth on Kirilenko in a film study you did for premium hoops and then an article you did for what was it halftime heroics am i over overtime heroics overtime heroics um tell me really quickly what what are the big takeaway points you got from that research that people need to know as we talk about andre kirilenko I think first, the thing that really is tough about analyzing this specific season is like when you go into YouTube and try and find games, they usually have a lot more like playoff kinds of games. And since the Jazz didn't make the playoffs, even though they were a 42 and 40 team, like they were above 500, they didn't make the playoffs. Uh, finding a lot of games was kind of difficult. So I had to go off with a little bit less data than you might imagine for like a today's kind of player. But in general, like the the key takeaways that like really stood out to me is and it's weird this is my top line takeaway but this man did not stop moving ever like at any point on offense or defense like especially on defense there's a couple times where it's almost like he's dancing like you see him like tap dancing he, between he like has, two guys he has the i think lebron kind of developed it later in his career but when he's on ball he like he's like um hopping into his steps to stay um to kind of stay, uh, what's the word? Agile. He's trying to stay agile. I think Drew Holiday does it a little bit too. He's talked about it when he's on ball, really just trying to stay on the balls of his feet, make it easier to navigate through screens. Sorry, I just I just noticed that too. Keep going. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, going back to to the Thinking Basketball podcast with Ben and uh, Evan Zaucha talking about athleticism, mm-hmm. like Carol Linko is just an extraordinary athlete. Like we have this guy that is like an, an absurd arm span. And he was able to combine that with like this this incredible balance like there are times where he's flying around and like helps on this double team and then sees like one of his his teammates is off the guy so he goes and covers that guy and then jumps the passing lane he like spins backward to go and contest a guy so this is a guy that was able to just kind of fly around the court all over the place and just cause a lot of havoc like racked up steals racked up a lot of blocks um offensively like not a great shooter like i think he kind of hovered around the 32% mark from three. So like spacing wasn't great, but as a cutter, like again, with the constant moving thing, he just knew how to move himself into open space. And, you know, his teammates weren't, uh, he, 
it wasn't like a high level offensive team. So players weren't able to capitalize on that movement quite as much there. And he didn't have quite as much of a creation role, but in some of those moments, you could see that he had flashes of like high level passing abilities. So it was this, just this, this odd player that didn't necessarily have high scoring numbers, didn't shoot the heck out of the ball, but kind of just was everywhere, like all the time, both on offense and defense. And I think those are like my, my high, the, my main takeaways of Curlingo. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned the shooting. I talk about this with uh, Mike Prada on a Reggie Miller podcast. And it's like, he wasn't a great, it's um, it goes back to, have you read the mid range theory yet? Seth Partnow's book <laughs> is currently sitting on my counter unopened. So no, I have not. Oh. Well, um, Julia and who, which, who was it that, that read, did you see that on Twitter? The person was going, they were going crazy because uh, a, um, a very famous, uh, a very famous actress, we'll call her, was uh, like reading Seth Partnow's book. No, I didn't see this at all. Oh, well, that's that's you. You you should do a Google search later. Okay. But um, anyways, so when Seth talks about in his book, it's like for guys like that, where it's as long as you can get the defense to close out on you. It's okay. Like what's really the difference between like a 30% three point shooter and like a 35% three point shooter, you know, as long as they're reacting to you. And I think that was Karolinko's thing. He was, and um, coach, coach Michael Ruffin over at the Suns, he played with him. And the first thing he told me when I talked to him was decisiveness. He was so, he had so much conviction in everything he did. Even he wasn't a great shooter. He would let it fly immediately. And that made the defense react and it made him a pretty valuable spacer when you talk about that. And then he's like one of the best cutters in the league, incredible at drawing free throws. I was looking at it. Who are his, his free throw rates were actually on par with Yao Ming's in this 2003, 2004 season, which I believe they're on par with him. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think they were, but I'll, I'll fact check that in a second. But so just to give you like a glimpse, Yao Ming was like pretty great at drawing free uh, fouls. So for Kirilenko to be on par with him like that just shows kind of the value of the sneaky value of his offensive game. Now, again, before we go into the exercise, I'm rambling, but is there anyone, I can think of two names. Is there anyone before Kirilenko who reminds you of Kirilenko? That's uh, I've thought about this a lot. I don't have like a great answer. Cause once again, I think illegal defense sort of nullified <laughs> the sort of value that Kirilenko brought defensively. It might be kind of cheating because he was drafted before him. But I do think uh, Sean Marion has like some elements that are similar. I think Sean Marion was a lot more on ball than than Kirilenko was. So I don't think that's a great analog. I see flashes. He, I don't think he was quite as good defensively as Scottie Pippen, but I see flashes of that sort of just like being a destructive player all over the place and could rotate down as like a forward, protect the rim and still step out and guard pretty much any guard. Um, I don't know. Those, those are like the two names that pop up to me. What about you? Who, who did you think of? Yeah. So I was like, I was, I was going to say Scotty, I was kind of afraid because like you said, like Scotty's stronger and then he was a little bit better on ball, a little bit more tenacious, but uh, I think the perfect one's Bobby Jones. Um, I know it's like a throwback, but I feel like he's like the perfect, like the same body type. He was able to really just be an impactful defender for Denver and the 76ers. Um, but I think that's a, like a really spot on one. I think now I want to, piggyback this going to today's game. I think that that Karolinko archetype, the space ball um, five tool defender, I like to call him. That's a pretty popular, like everyone's kind of, they kind of look for a guy, they draft a guy and they kind of hope he's like Karolinko. 
I have a couple of names in mind again. Do you think of anyone in today's game who reminds you of Kirilenko? I mean, the first one that comes to mind immediately is Draymond Green. Yeah. Um, I do think like Draymond Green is a better defensive player. I think Draymond Green is like a one of one. Like Kirilenko is pretty unique in himself, but Draymond is just passing ability off the charts defensively, just like the way that he could court map. I think it was a higher level than Kirilenko. I think he was quicker on his feet just across the board, probably better. I don't think he he didn't rack up the same steals and blocks as Kirilenko. That might have been the nature of the time with uh, mm-hmm. with the the kinds of defensive schemes and the way the offenses were played. But that that's immediately the first player I think of when I think Kirilenko. Yeah, no, I think Draymond's a good one. I think Draymond, and we'll talk about this later, much better rim deterrer. I think that one of the reasons Kirilenko was able to rack up so many blocks is because like he didn't really like strike the kind of like, he wasn't like Dwight Howard where people are like, yeah, I'm just not going to go in there. I'd rather take this like 16 foot mid range jump shot and still have like my dignity after, you know? So um, I think that, and again, they're not nearly on the same level, but I think the idea of them is what the people who, you know, wanted them on their team were kind of thinking. I think Scotty Barnes, I see a lot of similarities between the two of them. And then coincidentally enough, he's playing for Utah now, but I see a lot of Jared Vanderbilt and Kirilenko defensively. What do you think of those two? Uh, I see Scotty Barnes a little bit more. I For Vanderbilt, I don't think he has the shot blocking prowess that Kirilenko had because that was really the special thing. Like what was weird about Kirilenko is like you said, he wasn't necessarily rim deterring. He was so good at blocking like jump shots and blocking floaters and stuff. Like there's mm-hmm. a couple of, of uh, clips that I have from when they're, uh, the Jazz are playing playing against Shaq, and Shaq is actually like deterred from a hook shock because like Kurlinko comes over and like baits him into it, and Shaq has to pass out of it, and Kurlinko like sets that up. So he was definitely like a really talented shot blocker, and I don't think uh, Vanderbilt is quite to that level. I'm just thinking more so the motor, mm-hmm. the versatility, like the gangly Inspector Gadget type frame. But um, yeah, so those were mine. That's kind of the primer for the Kirilenko thing. Hopefully everyone listening to this kind of has an idea of the kind of player he was. But now, so we're going to go ahead and try to figure out where he was range-wise during that 2003-2004 season just to kind of demonstrate the the value he like brought to the core and why him being like a zagger when everyone else was zigging made him special and how that gave his team an edge of more bang for their buck or whatever. So to do this, we're going to, because Karolinko was named an all-star in this season. And I think both of us agree that he was at least an all-star in terms of impact. So we're going to go ahead and focus on the guys who were named to all-star teams, as well as Steve Nash and Chauncey Billups. Cause I think those two guys, um, I think they were the product of kind of us not really understanding what made winning basketball. I think both of them probably should have got in, on both their sides. So to start out, I'm going to read the guys that I think were for sure better than Kirilenko. Like there's no question, no argument. Cody, if there's any of them that you disagree with, please stop me, but I'm going to go ahead, pull up my spreadsheet here. So I had Kevin Garnett who wins the MVP that year. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So Kevin Garnett, Kobe Bean, Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Tim Duncan, Dirk Nowinski, Steve Nash, your boy, Ben Wallace, and then Tracy McGrady. What do you think of that? Uh, Yeah, I actually have all of those names down, except one of them who I think is closer than being definitely. I think I had Ben Wallace down in the, Mm -hmm. in the closer part of it, but all of those other names are, are names that I have down too. Okay. So 
the Ben Wallace thing, the offensive numbers are tough. They are mm-hmm. bad. He has like, once he gets to Chicago, he actually becomes like a decent passer. And so he has that, but yeah, it's bad. Um, I think his saving grace, he's probably the best player in the 2004 playoffs that the defense, I mean, they had like an all time defense in the playoffs and they, you know, the, him and the other Wallace brother were able to do there. I know they're not brothers. I just like to call them that the Wallace bros, but um, what they were able to do with Shaq and just annoying him and, you know, beat that Lakers team. I don't know. I feel like he, I also did this. I named the guys that were definitely better defenders than Kirilenko in this year. And I think it's Duncan Garnett and Wallace. And I think that Wallace is probably the third best defender out of those three, but like being I mean, that's like an all-time great defender, though. You know, you're the third best defender out of those three. And it's like close. Um, what 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 do you think it is that makes Wallace kind of close to being like Karolinko-esque impact that season? So I think that's when you like try and determine who is more impactful or less impactful than another player. Like you have to start like drawing in from all of these different elements. So like defensively, mm-hmm. yes, Ben Wallace was like incredible top tier all-time sort of defensive impact kind of guy and so it depends on like where Karolinko lands because if you imagine that Ben Wallace's uh whatever impact on defense I think you also kind of have to assume that he's at least a slight negative on defense like I don't I don't think you can quite even see him as a neutral I think he was able to, to help his offensive impact a little bit with offensive rebounding and like you said he even had some flashes of nice passing in 2004 but like the scoring numbers you could basically leave, leave him alone he wasn't necessarily a lob or roll threat and so like when you have a negative in this equation it brings you down and when you have somebody like Kurolenko who has strong defensive impact numbers and at least some offensive positive numbers like all of a sudden those numbers and that impact is going to start creeping up so uh ultimately i did lean ben wallace over kirilenko but i do think that negative part of his game brings him a little bit closer to kirilenko than like a definitely in this case okay i'll wear that so we'll say there's for sure in our little ranking seven guys right we have seven guys for sure we take wallace out this will matter a little bit later on by the way something i think i wanted to know kirilenko still hasn't peaked as a passer yet i think he peaks a couple years later am i right yeah, definitely. hundred percent. Okay. So that's something that's kind of negating him. And that's the thing with like, when you're doing the peak years, because just because it's your peak year, doesn't mean it's the peak of all your abilities. It's just like the intersection of all of it. And it's kind of like the best blend. You never really get that. The perfect peak for players where everything is perfect. Like, you know, cause you either, like we talked about this with MJ before recording, I know I'm going to tangent, but like MJ peaked guile wise after he peaked athleticism wise, you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And I think the player that you referenced here that actually had the closest to like peak offense and defense is Kevin Garnett. I think mm-hmm. this is probably like the closest to both of those skills being at, at their apex in 2004. Yeah, Garnett's, I was looking through the numbers. He's just insane. He's, he's a monster. He's ridiculous. It's, he's it's unbelievable going back and watching him in the playoffs. He's just, I mean, we just talked about it on Thinking Basketball, giving like the, the conference finals MVP. Mm-hmm. And in 2004, we gave it to Kevin Garnett, even though they lost in six games, just because he's, it, it's absurd to watch him in that series. Yeah, no, I think he's probably the best player in the world this season. If I had to, if I had to rank him like that, but that's just me. I wouldn't argue. I'm, I'm not going to go out on that limb, but <laughs> I like that you said it and I'm not going to argue with you. Awesome. Okay. So now here's the guys that I thought, um, 
Andre Kirilenko was for sure better than that made all-star games. So I had Steve Francis, Brad Miller, Yao Ming. This one's okay. I, I think I want to move him to the fence, but I had Ron Artest as Kirilenko being for sure better than I'll, we'll, we'll park that for a second. Baron Davis, Allen Iverson, um, Jamal McGlore. I don't, I really don't know why he was an all-star this year. Kenyon Martin, um, Michael Red, and then I, I think Karolinko was also better than Jermaine O'Neal. Is there anyone you disagree with that? Uh, no, I had I had Karolinko above all of them. With the Iverson point, though, um, I kind of didn't consider him because he only played like 48 games this season. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of players that had the the games um, marker where I'm like, eh, I'm not even going to include you because you missed so much of the season. But um, off all of that, who do you think would be the closest who did you feel the the biggest push and pull with when you were considering this so i have a hard time with that pacers team because i'm trying to figure out who's the one driving the defense because okay first of all i think offensively miller has more juice than the box score gives him credit for i think that his off-ball gravity kind of in the way he used to help rick smith's get um separation where they wouldn't really double down i know that's more of a legal defense um, concept, but Rick Smith was able to get a lot of easy post-ups because of Reggie Miller's gravity. And I think that Jermaine O'Neal also benefited in that way. And he had a really good volume scoring season, although his efficiency was pretty bad. And then it got worse in the playoffs that year. And then Ron Artest also his offensive package. I prefer Karolinko's. I think I know Ron Artest was a slightly better volume scorer, but Karolinko, again, I just like that. I like his cutting I like the efficiency, the free throw drawing, the the quick decision making. And then defensively, it's just like, I know Ron Artest wins defensive player of the year, but I don't know if he's the reason they were like the fourth best defense or whatever they were. I don't know like how to divvy up between him and O'Neal because I know they both had really good defensive seasons that year. This is, I thought about this Pacers team. I'm, I'm glad mm. you stuck on this too, because this is kind of my, one of my sticking points, because I think Jermaine O'Neal is a pretty tremendous defensive player. And I think in terms of being an anchor, um, he's, he's probably underrated at this mm-hmm. point. I think he was a tremendous defensive player, but I think when you look at like the surrounding Pacers seasons, like I know that Jermaine especially starts struggling with, with injuries in the next couple of seasons, but their defense does not get to the same height that it is this season. Like it's the same, like Rick Carlisle is the coach for a few seasons in a row here. Their defense is like nearing six points better than league average, which is absurd. Insane. Yeah. That's incredible. But like, it doesn't get anywhere near that. It hovers right close to the three ish range a little bit. So I'm like, is this an outlier spike? Like what's going on here? Um, I do give more of the credit to, to O'Neill in this situation, um, man, I I don't know, though, but I think in the, the thing that I really like about Kurolinko in terms of anyone else that you were talking about here is that I think he fits into a uh, team concept so much more smoothly, whereas like, you know, O'Neal, he had like a nice little he took a lot of his shots from like the 10 to 16 foot range he had a lot of like post turnarounds and stuff and he could go into like these scoring bursts but like you said not very efficient wasn't creating a ton off his passing and stuff like that and i just don't see how he fits into a high level offense whereas like kurolenko i think is maybe the most portable player in nba history he he can fit into team concepts better than than anybody else so i when it came down to it that was sort of my um why i gave him the nod yeah and i think the biggest thing with o'neill it doesn't even have like a a tough shot make. Cause usually when you see those like volume scores, like low efficiency, it's usually cause they take a lot of tough shots, but with O'Neill, it's like in the play, 
what tells me this is the playoffs efficiency going down even more. You know what I mean? That means that because usually tough shot making, it holds up pretty solid in the playoffs and it didn't for O'Neal. So that tells me that these were still like pretty solid looks he was getting and he just wasn't, he didn't have, you know, the, the depth of moves, depth of counters, whatever necessary to um, take that into the playoffs. And then the playoffs is a really tricky thing to kind of think about here. I don't know how much you considered it because we didn't get to see Karolinko in the playoffs this year, but like generally the idea of a Karolinko with that versatility, the scheme versatility, the portability, that usually bodes well, really well in the playoffs. Yeah, and I think if we had seen him on a better team than the one he was on, he would have been able to showcase that a little bit more. But like the fact that A, he was playing mostly out of position, like most mm-hmm. of his minutes were at small forward. And, you know, if he was playing right now, he'd be split between power forward and center instead of split between small forward and power forward. Um, so positionally, he's out there. And then again, I think like his role, he's sort of out of what he he needs to be like more of a third, fourth option on offense as opposed to like being a primary driver of offense. So I think those are a couple of things that's like tough to dive in and be like, um, yeah, this is like objectively what Kurlinko is in 2004. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I had in my notes, like, you know, X player played on like an offensively slanted roster X player played on like a defensively slanted roster. And like, there is no slant in what Karolinko's roster was like that roster was just a roster. That's all it really was. Um, I don't, it was a, it was a, a very hard to love, like amalgamation of, of gentlemen. We'll put it that way. <laughs> I like that. Um, there's a player you actually, you said earlier when you were listening that Carolyn goes mm-hmm. was definitely better than 2004. And I want to talk about him for a second. Um, can we talk about Brad Miller for a second? Oh my God. I didn't think he was the one I don't have to talk about. Go go <laughs> ahead. I, I have, I've thoughts. So what's amazing about Brad Miller is like in this 2004 season, uh, the Kings, like Chris Weber only plays like 23 games mm-hmm. and they still boast like one of the best relative offenses of this century. Like it's like seven and a half points better mm-hmm. than, than league average. He's an extremely efficient scorer. He doesn't have a ton of creation burden, but his passing ability is off the charts, like between him and Divach, like it's like a weird egalitarian offense that he fits into so well. And defensively, he brings like so much more impact. And I think people might be like, well, wait a second. Why are you making a case for Brad Miller over Paige Stoyakovich, who is his teammate? And I think it's like that defensive part of it, too. But I think like ultimately, I still lean Kurlinko. Um, I lean Kurlinko just because uh, I think Miller was like perfect system for him really much lower usage much lower load but i do think that brad miller had like a coupled season peak here that's pretty underrated i think he's an immensely talented big man that brought it on on both ends enough to like garner all-star level um impact you know who he reminds me of defensively today's game Jonas valanciunas do you see that Mm, that's interesting. I just splash water all over my face here. That's not sweat. If anyone's wondering, I'm not like, oh my goodness, that's such a terrifying question. I feel like <laughs> Brad Miller. Uh, I feel like Brad Miller would have been a better defensive player than Jonas, but I think like the idea is the same. I think like, yeah, I think you're onto something there. I like that. Yeah, but uh, like you said, system wise, he did play. I think that's Rick Adelman's second to last year in on, on uh, Sacramento, right? Maybe I think that sounds right. I love Rick. Yeah, man. Yeah, I love. And, you know, he ran the corner offense, which is perfect for those passing big men like Divac, Weber and Miller. But that, yeah, Miller was he was actually pretty early for me on the like, Okay, I think I'm pretty sure Karolinko's 
better than this guy. And that's because we're, we're going to talk about him in a second, but I really value Peja Stoyakovich. And I thought he was, he was pretty awesome. Another guy I want to talk about, speaking of Rick Adelman coached big men, how, how, um, how long did it take you to deliberate on Yao Ming? I, this is pretty early. I mean, this is Yao's second season. Mm-hmm. I know this is like Kurlinko's third season we're talking about. I don't think Yao quite peaked. At this point, like we don't start seeing like the defensive dynasty that Houston built quite yet. Like I think he still was figuring things out there. And I think I don't think Yao was ever like a great passer, but I still think he's like a, a level below what he becomes. Like when you get closer to like the 09 season, which I think is probably his peak when he's shooting like 90 percent from the free throw line and and like drop defense God, essentially. Um, but I actually didn't deliberate very long very long on this one. I think Kurolinko is uh, comfortably better than Yao Ming this season. Mm-hmm. So you think that like later, I'm curious because, you know, one of the players we talk about is Shane Battier. And I I argue that he's probably the, the best defender from 06 to 09 on those Rockets teams. So you, you think it's, it's Yao's Yao's baby, that defense, man. Um, that is tough just because that Rockets team had a ton of defensive talent on it. McGrady. And, and it, it's, yeah, I mean, McGrady is a, an underrated defensive player, I think. I don't think he's like an all defensive level defender, but he was good. Um, but even like Matumbo ends up being a backup big for Yao at some point. But I think like Yao is he, he was a, a paint protecting nightmare, obviously not super mobile, but he wasn't quite punished like I think he would have been in, in today's NBA. So I think he fit into like what was going on in the 2000s a little bit better. I would say that he was like sort of the base for what their defense was. Interesting, huh? Okay, that I'll could be a, an episode another day. We could we could talk about the uh, late two thousands Rockets and see who the best defensive player was. Can, can I can I share a stat I pulled out for the Battier article? Oh please, please. Uh, so when you know when Yao goes down with the the freak foot thing, um, in oh yeah. eight during the twenty two game win streak, yeah. So for the rest of the season, their defensive rating remains virtually unchanged. And they're standing within the league hierarchy remains unchanged. And there is no, uh, there's no shooting variance either. And I know some of it's Mutombo, but how good, I mean, that's, I guess you're right. This is a different conversation for a different day, but how good was 41 year old Mutombo? I don't know. But I mean, Yao Ming was like you said, like kind of really good, really, really good paint protector who doesn't get talked about enough for that because he was seven, six and people were more enamored by his size. And he was enormous. Like you see mm-hmm. pictures of him next to Shaq and it's like, oh, my God, Shaq's like a regular person. Um, I I don't have enough time to like summarize this or like bring it up or even read it right now. But there was an article, I think, in 2014 by Zach Lowe called The Delicate Balance of NBA Defense. Um, it was a Grantland article. I don't know if I said that, but I think he talks about Yao Ming a little bit in here. And I, I thought it was an interesting case for like the different styles that that teams had defensively and. Um, I'll send it your way because I was like, oh, this yeah. is an interesting take on Yao Ming's defense. Yeah. Zach Lowe was just during that time because that's when he comes out with the Kyle Korver article. He was just just launching bombs. But we got to we got to keep going. You're right. Um, one other guy on this. OK, so I had, I just want to get a couple of thoughts off about these guys that kind of came to me. Kenyon Martin, underrated defensive player. I think he was he was a really yeah. good defensive player. They had a really good defensive team, but he was a really good defensive player. And then Michael Red, he kind of reminds me, he kind of feels like he was like just a notch below Peja offensively. Would you say that? I think that's a great comparison. He basically mm-hmm. does everything Peja does, but just a little bit worse. I think Michael Red was maybe a little bit 
better on ball creating and scoring. Like, I think he was able to drive in and get fouled a little bit better. But yeah, the same defensive woes, the same lack of like passing chops that would elevate his offensive game. So yeah, that that's mm-hmm. I, how I feel. Okay, so now we have, let's see, one, two, three, four, seven names left. Um, I'm going to name the guys and we should just talk about them really briefly where we lean on them. I'll try to keep track over here on my end. But I'll start with Ray Allen, who's playing with the offensive juggernaut in Seattle under, I think, I think Bob Hill's still the coach at this time. But what, what did you think of Ray Allen and Andre Kirilenko? I cheated. Um, he mm-hmm. played 57 games, so I didn't consider him. Okay, that, that's fair. I guess, so I did have the games played. Karolinko plays 21 more games than him that season. And I, I think that's worth a lot. I, honestly, that's a couple of wins right there of value that's yep. lost with Allen. I think there's that. Um, the defense is not that good at this point on Allen's. And I think he becomes a better defender as he gets older, a little bit wiser. Um, but offensively, he's amazing. Those teams were like really offensively juiced up. So his numbers look a little bit better, but... Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna take Allen out of this thing. Now let's get let's get to Peja. Peja, who again he has like an just an insane like bonkers offensive season. I think he's like plus like nine or ten relative true shooting, which is like insane. He's like top ten in the league in volume scoring, I believe. Um, his passing wasn't that good, but the 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 off ball gravity kind of Reggie Miller esque. He has that. Where did you where did you land on that one? So I think this is what I was talking about with Ben Wallace, but it's kind of Mm -hmm. the other side of the coin. Like when you're trying to evaluate how good someone is on offense, it's tough when you have a guy that's like, look at how tremendously valuable he is um, scoring wise. Like, look at the value that he's getting from his efficiency, from his volume. But then he doesn't like bring that much when it comes to passing. He doesn't like offensive rebound necessarily. And then defensively, I think he was a pretty clear negative, if we're being mm. honest here. So that brings him back a little bit. So I think that uh, the the I, he's not a bad passer, but he's not like – I think some highlight videos where he has like a full court behind the back pass and makes people think that Pedro was yeah. like this all-time level passer, but he, he wasn't that level. So I think those elements just like notched him down enough where I'm like, I think Karolinko's going to scrape by here. Okay. I, I also had – Kirilenko, I think for the same things you mentioned, the defense was was tough. The passing was, you know, it, it is what it was. Um, and I think also the big one for me was the playoffs. He had a bad playoffs. And I think that's part of that's, again, his game kind of doesn't have those like, it's just not, it's not very resilient. I think is the word I'm looking for. He doesn't have like a bunch of, he's not like Luka Doncic with all these like counters on ball. And he, since he was like, he was more on ball than somebody say like, like Richard Hamilton was during that time. He did handle the ball some. And because he relied on that ball handling, he didn't have like, whether it be like a really fast release or a quick first step, something to give him like an automatic advantage against these tougher defenses. I think that kind of took him down a peg there. So we're, we've got Allen done. We've got Peja done. This one, this one's one of the all time great age 34 seasons, Sam Cassell. What, what do you think of that? I, Man, I I did think about this one because Sam Cassell really does have himself a season this year, mm-hmm. like just out of this world season for him. Uh, I, I'm going to punt it back to you. What did you think about Cassell? So he's one of the guys I had over Kirilenko. I think that, OK, so you, me and you, when we talked about this, wanting to do this beforehand, we talked about the philosophical discussions we could get into. Right. And so I guess it comes down to. 
Kirilenko is this super versatile defender who you can put him in pretty much any offensive ecosystem and he'll find a way to fit in. The defense is, is, you know, it's all NBA level when he's at his best week, like defensive player of the year, right? He's like a puncher's chance at defensive player of the year when he's that good, but he's not like a Titan, like Garnett, Duncan, Wallace, Matumbo, um, Ewing, whatever. Whereas Sam Cassell, you get that same portability that you talked about where he's not, he is okay. So he is on ball a lot on those teams and he's got this great playmaking, efficient scoring on really good volume. But again, like it, like it fits in next to Garnett, you know, he can play with a guy like Garnett on this high level team. They are, t- I think they were the fifth best offense in the league that year. And then he does enough defensively where, and just being a point guard, you can't really kill your defense that much unless you're Trey Young. You know, I mean, you've, you've been on the record of saying Trey Young, one of the worst defenders of this century, whatever, and better at offense than Luka Doncic. But that's neither oh, here We're going to forget that last one. That's, uh, let's say some opinions have been changed since, since the regular season. But um, anyway, so it's just, I don't know, to me, I think that that archetype, that kind of guy like a Cassell would be more valuable. I see where you're coming from because Sam Cassell does have a history of being on good teams. Like he was in those mm-hmm. early nineties Rockets teams. He was on the, the 2001 bucks team that made the Easter Conference finals. And that was the best offense in the league. And again, he's on a strong offense. Um, I think with the way you were talking about him, you might be giving him a little bit too much credit defensively, uh, especially at this age 34 season. And I almost think like when you see some of these players joining up next to like, mm-hmm. The, these flexible, like portable gods like Kevin Garnett, you see them have spikes in their own impact. So like Sean Marion, for instance, you, you dive in his numbers and the years when he's playing with Steve Nash are like significantly better looking than any other year away from Steve Nash. Joe Johnson, I think he ultimately ended up playing like one full season with Steve Nash. His three point percentage is like 45 percent over like 82 games. They never like crests like 41 percent for the rest of his career. And so you're like, oh, wait a second. Did they get worse? Did they get better? And I think it's really tough to disentangle like the value that one of these like superstar literal all timers has for you. So I'm like, I don't know how to take that. I don't know how to take like Sam Cassell having like this Julius Randle 2021 season where I'm mm-hmm. like, is this like so much better than usual? So I kind of hedged a little bit and I cheated and I gathered some like surrounding years a little bit. And I, I did that later on. We'll talk I, about that. I put Kurolinko ahead of Cassell. I, I, I thought about Cassell, but I ended up with, with Kurolinko ahead of him. Yeah. And honestly, you used, so in my notes when I was giving the Kurolinko over Ron Artest argument, I said that Kirilenko didn't have an O'Neal and that's maybe why some of his, his, you know, team defensive numbers may have been better. And so you make a good point. I think that, you know, Kirilenko's poor infrastructure in Utah kind of hurt him there when you try to look at, you know, these impact metrics and, you know, these per possession stuff that we look at. So, okay, I'm I'm with you. I think you've sold me on um Kirilenko over Cassell, but still that's a, like a damn good age 34 season top 20 top 25 player in the league age you know, 34 season it's ridiculous like Cassell had himself a season like that was that mm. was a very good team that like if he didn't get injured before the Western Conference finals like they have a puncher's chance of making the the finals over that Lakers team I agree I mean they took him to six right yeah. With Garnett playing like the point guard and like the free safety and the coach and he was like literally everything <laughs> to that team 
And Cassell missed a game and he was mm-hmm. playing like 15 minutes a game and just like muddling through an injury. So there's there's a lot of what ifs that season. Yeah. Okay, so got those three down. Now this is the one where I used the um outside years for, but Vince Carter was a tricky one for me. I know you I know you love Vince, so I'll give you the floor first. <sighs> This one, uh, this one was really tough, mm-hmm. Matt. This one was really tough. Um, this was like a odd, like a spiraling down. I think like Vince Carter's impact spiraled a little bit down as his as his Raptors years dwindled. Like it's pretty. I feel like it's fairly documented, like how he didn't leave on the greatest of notes. He didn't leave Toronto. You don't um, say. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say it's uh, it's not like a hidden thing or anything. Yeah. They were still like they were not a particularly good team, but like when he's on and like his on off numbers on offense are still like pretty incredible. Where it's like this guy still has some offensive juice. But I thought like this this year he just didn't bring it. He just he just didn't bring it. And I think you're gonna end up saying that he's better than than Karolinko, But I docked him by the way that I saw him kind of spiraling mm-hmm. mentally here, and I ended up with Karolinko above Vince Carter. So I actually did take. Kirilenko as well, but I I will say, I will say Carter, I liked, I gave him points for being on the seventh ranked defense and like contributing to a seventh ranked defense. I think that's, that shows me good signs. You can't, obviously he's not an anchor, but you know, be the fourth best defender on a seventh best, fourth best, like defender in a closing lineup on the seventh best defense in the league. That's, that's good. That's good when you have that kind of offensive package. Um, The next season when he plays with kid and Richard Jefferson and a little bit better of a climate, I think it's the next season of the year after whatever he he's, he's got plus efficiency again on high volume. I liked that, but um, it's kind of, it's kind of like what you said where it's Carter. So they do like, again, he can be a part of, he was a part of really good defenses in New Jersey, but at the same time, their offenses were, you know, once the offense got better, the defense got worse. They couldn't have like, that really good balance to go deep. And it's like, I think things need to be just a lot more specific around Carter to have that, like, you know, true contender than Karolinko where it's like, you have such a, when he's one of the guys you're building around your margin for error is just so large because he can fill so many different gaps. So I think that version of Karolinko, yeah, I'd probably take him over a Carter. Speaking of those New Jersey Nets teams, the next guy Jason Kidd. And I feel like before I turn it over to you, I feel like this version of Kidd is like the perfect battle for what we're trying to get at here philosophically, where it's like floor raising, the ultimate floor raising versus not the ultimate, ultimate's like LeBron James, but like somewhere under that floor raising in Kidd against like Kirilenko's ceiling raising kind of skill set. So Jason Kidd, I think it's interesting because I think mm-hmm. when most people think about Jason Kidd, they have this like they almost like have a point God sort of idea of him where he's this offensive maestro that's setting things up. And I think he extracted great mm-hmm. value from his passing ability. But mm-hmm. I think at the half court, like his his scoring woes kind of held him back like he wasn't a great finisher. He wasn't a great shooter, just not a great scorer in general. But he, he could score a little bit, but like he could set people up passing wise. But I don't think he's quite like to the level of slicing through an offense and just like creating an offense unto himself. But then I think on the other side of the coin, he is so much better defensively than people give him credit. Like he was the, 
the linchpin of like this really incredible New Jersey Nets defensive squad that they had for a couple of years. And I think like that combination, again, when you talk about like adding up value offensively and defensively, I think it's really close. But I ended up leaning kid on this one because I think he squeezes out enough offensive value and defensive value to to bump him up above Kurlenko. Yeah. Okay. so before before I get into my side of things. I had this in my notes. You're probably going to hate me for asking you this without telling you I was going to ask you it. But since you've studied Gary Payton, I'm curious, which which uh, point guard do you think defense, value derives more from their defense? I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't think it's close. I think Jason Kidd is is pretty easily the better, like more impactful defensive player. I think Jason I, Kidd I agree. historically – is just an all-time defensive guard that's just like not remembered quite how he should be. I agree. Now, so how much credit do you give? Because I think that obviously kids like, you know, elite guard defender in that era, but there's like a ceiling to how much your elite guard defense can do for your defense. And then he also has Kenyon Martin, who we talked about, really good defender for that time period. I think he he deserves the all-star nod that he got this season. And then Richard Jefferson, who's like super athletic, you know, He's, he's long. He's got, he's got good lateral quickness. He's got, he's got hops, you know, he's a great defender. Um, so how much credit do you give kid for having that defensively slanted roster? Well, I think what helps with kid is like when you talk about maybe overvaluing guard defense, Mm. I think specifically point of attack, like there's a limit to how valuable you can be with that. But Jason Kidd was a lot more than just like a point of attack defender. I think his size too, he's like, a, he was a very sturdy six, four. Mm-hmm. So like he could cover and switch around effectively to pretty much like, you know, one, especially at that time, it would probably be one through three. They're probably mostly like stronger fours, but he could probably body up against like a, a stretch four at the time. But he kind of reminded me of Drew Holiday in that sense. Where he's yeah. like this really strong dude. But I think what he had more than Drew Holiday even is like, off ball he could just like double quickly off you and get a steal he could jump passing lanes he's a really i I know we we maybe overrate this with with russell westbrook but i think he was a strong defensive rebounder that helped a little bit so i think just like the disruption he could cause his ability to switch bigger smaller and his point of attack i think all of that combines to being like a really unique defensive presence at this time and so I, I don't ultimately want to like pick between him or Martin, but I think both of them were like really significantly important cogs to this, to this strong defensive core. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this, this season, they come within one win of their third straight Eastern conference finals. And I know like it's silly to talk about team accomplishments when we're, you know, comparing these individual players, but it just shows like kids, like ability to do all these like, non-glamorous thing yeah i went with kid as well um pretty much for all the things you said i think his defense is some of the best guard defense we've ever seen he was really good even though legal defense is gone by this time like the post was still important the post-ups so he was really good at doubling down from the perimeter and really bothering the the big man down there getting steals just disrupting things and then he was great at getting out in transition Great, a great transition kind of orchestrator. That's when he really was like a maestro, like slicing people up. Reminds me a lot of like today, offensively, what you think of like LaMelo Ball probably mm-hmm. with some more strength, better finishing. But um, yeah, so I'm we're going to go kid there. So, so far out of the five, we've only really taken kid over Karolinko. And so now we got two more. These are really tough. Um, 
another guy who's kind of like similar profile to Carter in terms of the numbers position during this time is Paul Pierce. I think this season's kind of working against him. He This is his first, I believe, without uh, Antoine Walker, who, you know, make of him what you will. He, he was very helpful with the pull-up three-point shooting that they like to do under coach Jim O'Brien. Um, and then there's some injuries. There's a coaching change, I believe, in the middle of the year. Pierce still has a great year. I think he's a really good two-way player. We get to see more of his defense come out once they bring in Garnett. I don't know, like you talked about how much of that was because of Garnett, but he did a pretty good job against James in the, what was it, 08 playoffs. Um, what, do you, what do you think about all this? I think Paul Pierce is actually the toughest player that I thought about in this mm-hmm. entire exercise. Uh, just because, you know, we're starting to, we're like approaching the point where like the Celtics were actually pretty solid, like 2002-ish there in the Eastern Conference Finals and they're, the Paul Pierce has like a couple really strong games where he comes out there and it might've been the year before he drops 50 in the playoffs, but like, this is a guy that can definitely bring it in the playoffs. Um, defensively. Yeah. I think I did say that about Kevin Garnett, but I do think Paul Pierce has some really good defensive chops at this time. And offensively, like I think he brings more than Vince Carter. Like I think as like a primary, I never saw Vince Carter as being like, I can break down the offense and I break down the defense and set up my, my teammates. And I always thought Paul Pierce is a little bit better than him at that. I think maybe at their peaks, Vince was maybe a little bit better because he was just an incredible shooter. Um, But at this point, I think Paul Pierce is comfortably better than him. I really don't know. I think I initially leaned Kurolinko, but like the more I thought about it, I'm like, I don't know, man. I think if I were like drafting a team in 2004, I would probably end up taking Paul Pierce first. So this is one of those where I'm going to like sit on the fence and see what you end up doing. Yeah. So I leaned towards Pierce here. I think, again, I use those outside years where I'm like, okay, I see, I see great defensive contributions after this. Um, you know, we know the kind of postseason scorer he is. He puts up like really good numbers. Like I said, volume scoring, his efficiency is a little bit, eh, but that's because there's not really too much offensive personnel this season. Again, it's just a weird year for Pierce. And it's like, I mean, I've seen it. We've seen, and it's not fair to talk about what he did in 2008, 2004, but we saw like, He's probably the best offensive player on that 2008 Celtics team, right? Where Garnett's like the anchor of the defense. Would you agree? Yeah, I I would say that's probably the case. Mm -hmm. And so like to get that, to get like a guy who can work in a scheme defensively, you know, he works in that scheme that they were trying to run against LeBron James in 2008. I think I, and then, you know, the playmaking, all that, I, I probably, I leaned Pierce. I had that in my notes. I don't think... If you went the opposite way, unlike where with Cassell, I kind of had Cassell in my notes, but then you you were kind of able to convince me otherwise. I don't think the same thing could happen with Pierce. I think a little bit more of what Pierce can do, especially because of the size and he's a little younger at this time, a little more athletic. I, I got to go Pierce. I'm, I'm going to go with you then. I, I was mm-hmm. on the fence, but I'm going to I'm going to go your way. Something that's also interesting is like the Jazz won six more games, I think, than the Celtics. But like when you get to the net rating. Um, they're basically the same. They perform just about the same, even though the Celtics in the East made the playoffs and the jazz didn't in the West. So I think like team wise, it comes down to being pretty close to. So I'll, I'll lean with you. Let's say, let's say Pierce is better than, than Kurolinko. Awesome. Okay. So now lastly, he also didn't make an all-star team. He was the finals MVP 
Chauncey Billups. So I don't quite think that this is Chauncey Billups' peak. I think mm-hmm. that he ultimately gets better maybe a couple years from now. I, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and like exactly say what it is, but I don't think this is as good as Chauncey Billups gets. Um, but I think like when you, when you look at like this, this Pistons roster, especially after Rasheed Wallace joins them, you have guys like Rip Hamilton, you have Chauncey Billups, you have Rasheed Wallace, you have Tayshaun Prince who could do some stuff offensively. And we talked about Ben being a negative on offense and still, even after Rasheed went there, they barely scraped by league average offense. And so I'm not like really convinced that Billups was like at the same level as a guy like like uh, Paul Pierce, for instance, offensively, at least at this point. Like this, we're just talking about 2004 mm-hmm. at this point. And so I don't think he quite has enough offensively to move the needle. And I don't think he's quite like he's not anywhere near Jason Kidd defensively either. So I I ended up comfortably staying Kurlinko here. OK, I, I thought about this a lot more. Um my thing is able to maintain his efficiency in the playoffs. Um, he was he was at the forefront at the point of attack. I know we, we kind of overrate the point of attack defense, but he could switch. He could switch on to bigger guys. He was strong. And then that Pistons team, that defense in the playoffs was historically like pretty awesome. I know that had a lot to do with the unrelated Wallace bros. I really liked his shot selection. I think the... And, uh, you know, Billups actually gets talked about later in this series, but his pull-up three-point shooting, um, that was part of the reason why it took me a second to really think about the Baron Davis thing. Because I'm like, man, Baron Davis, like, it's a really great shot selection. But for some reason, Baron Davis' efficiency still sucked, even though he was taking a bunch of pull-up threes. But, um, yeah, so that made me – it made me think – I don't know, I like that blend. I like – he's versed – like, at the end of the day, I think the the calling card, Karolinko, is like – that versatility, the portability, you could do so much with him. He wears so many different hats for you, but Billups did it too. Um, but if your evaluation of his offense is just not as high as you think, when, so like, are we saying like 05, 06 ish, probably you get a better version of Billups offensively? Are you talking like Denver years? Probably not Denver years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's really tough too is just like, Larry Brown as a coach always skewed like defensively. So yeah, his teams are always all his teams. Bit. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So as soon as like Flip Saunders takes over, you see like this five point swing towards offense. And I think that unlocks Billups more. So again, it's like really hard to disentangle these like how much effect did the coach have and was Billups himself actually at his prime. So I think, man, I, I did say Curlin goes comfortably above him. But like in terms of like you have a point guard that's running the show and can play in a bunch of these different schemes. Yeah, Billups is great at that. but um. I, th- I think I'm still going to end up leaning Karolinko in this one. Okay. But this is your list. This is you. No, no, I'm I'm, guess, I, I, I like that. I, I like that. I like that. So uh, we're just going to, I mean, it, at the end of the day, this is just that we're ranging this. So we're going to mm-hmm. keep, we're going to say, because I, I still think, I still think Billups, because you get the combination. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, because you're getting like 90, 90, two percent of what you got from Cassell offensively this season from Billups. And then you get like, it's not like with Cassell, it's like, thank God he didn't kill us. You know, it's like not thank God, but like, it wasn't, you weren't like counting on Cassell where Billups it's like, okay, he can be at the forefront of this thing, you know, at this, this well-oiled five man machine. And then, but at the same time though, like you said, with Larry Brown, since he's such a defensively slanted guy and he has 
this resume where everywhere he goes with those Pacers teams in the 90s, with the 76ers, he creates a really good defensive team, whether or not he has like anchors like Ben Wallace behind him. So it's like, okay, but if we want to do it that way, then maybe you could find a guard not as good as Billups to kind of work in this thing and, and work for this team construct. I, I don't know. So we're just going to, we're going to say just for the range that we'll take Billups just so we can put him in this kind of range we've created where, so at the high end, we would say those seven guys are better than Kirilenko and Kirilenko's eight. Right. And then at the low end, we would say guys like, what did we say? Kid Pierce and Billups were better. So we would have Kirilenko try to do this math. I'm embarrassed at 11. So we have him like the eight to 11 range, which is basically like comfortably pretty much his second team, all NBA guy fringe third team. Right. I know he doesn't get, he doesn't get an all NBA selection this year. Right. No, I don't think he does at least. No. Yeah. I think, so, I think that range, that range sounds mm-hmm. about good. I think when I ended up doing this, I just put like a wider net. Maybe mm-hmm. I said like, Probably between nine to fifteen is where I would end up with Karolinko. But uh yeah, I think you narrowed it down to like where he probably would have ended up. Yeah, eight to eleven. I mean, we could get like a little bit like you could say, like if we give Cassell or you know, Carter Carter, can't speak right now, Carter or Peja like a little bit more points yeah. in our little theoretical game, then you could say make a case for those guys. Um, I'm sure like if there was like a more devout Ron Ron Artest. Yeah. No, that's that used to be his name, Ron Artest. Ron Artest guy. I mean, if we got more in the nitty-gritty on his defense, maybe we could make an argument there. But yeah, so it's basically what we're getting at here is this guy who like people kind of couldn't really figure out the, you know, though that that crazy adjusted plus minus for ESPN came out and he was like third or something like that. And it's like, is he really one of the the best players in the world? Like this guy, you know, he averaged like 14 points a game, 15 points a game. And what he was probably impacting the game at is like an all NBA caliber level. And that's like really the whole point of the series where you take these at the time, revolutionary skills, something that's commonplace. He's like a, you know, today we're looking for guys who can defend space. That's the way to guard space ball is to defend it. And, you know, Draymond has become the king of space ball defensively. And I think at his peak, He's probably even higher than top eight. You know what I mean? We said Draymond's better than, than Kirilenko at his peak. And so I think that's really the overall point here. You, I want to turn the floor over to you, kind of get your final closing summary on all this. I like the space ball too thing because that mm-hmm. goes back over to his offensive impact as well. It's just being able to like understand where he needs to be both on offensive rebounds and cuts and and just like spacing the floor and whatnot. So yeah, he's uh he definitely is like an early master of that sort of game without really boasting like a strong jump shot. So um I'm glad I'm glad you've took the time to carve out to talk about Karolinko because I think he's a really unique player that unfortunately like because of injuries and whatever else just never uh never quite hit the peak that it looks like he probably should have after the 2004 season. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. And I think the cool thing about this series, and this will be, you know, when the article comes out, this will be like a main talking point. But like people always say, like people who have talked to me about this series, like, man, I can't wait for the Kirilenko episode. He would have been so good in today's NBA. And they kind of talk about him like a tragic hero where it's like we never got to. But like Kirilenko was not only good for today's game, but his skill set made him even better in his time. I think that being that revolutionary, I think we see that with all these guys where it's like, for example, Nash. There's years where he might be the best player in the world, right? 
I think in today's game, well, we would understand that better just because of how many like guys who fit like that kind of mold. Like I think that if we put him in today's game with the exact same set of skills, forget like he gets the training that everyone else got. He probably wouldn't be the best player in the world. Right. We probably have like Jokic, Giannis, Steph. We'd probably say those guys are better than Nash. Right. Uh, yeah, man, that, that's a that's a tough question if we're not like translating like he has time to practice and stuff because his shooting ability and passing and playing in, in space offensively would be nuts. But he's definitely still bringing a little bit of the defensive woes. But when we're talking like Giannis and Steph and, and Jokic, we're talking like literal, literal all time level players. Mm. So they'd still probably be better than him. Yeah. So I guess like the whole point of all this, like the series is to kind of point out that. Yes. So like. Yes, like today's game, we'd understand them better, but them being revolutionaries actually worked to their advantage at the time because they were able to impact the game, you know, um, just they had an advantage because they were doing something everybody else wasn't doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I like that. I like it yeah. a lot. And yeah. it's like this I, idea, I think you said it earlier in the episode, but um, like these these players that were like, oh, it would have been great to see him in today's NBA. Like they still hold that value in the era that they played mm-hmm. because those are the same skills. Like there are some skills that when you translate to any part of the league, like beyond just like tough shot making, they're still valuable because, you know, the idea of basketball is still the same idea it's always been. Exactly. No, and I think that's the cool thing about all of this and the cool thing about studying history um, the way we do. But um, yeah, no, Cody, this was really fun. And I feel like this idea, like let's take X player their best year and try to figure out what exactly that meant would be like, just like an awesome, like series idea, like just to do a whole series on guys like that. Yeah. That'd be really tough. If you had to like recreate like a top mm-hmm. 20 each season, man, that would be. Yeah. Be like Seth now is like tiers list for every season in NBA history. Exactly. Man, that's, it's a tough one. It'd be awesome to see, but that'd be mm-hmm. really tough. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> maybe somebody more driven somebody more driven but this was cool yeah. yeah thank you so much for having me on here i I mean talk about any nba player at any time but uh yeah i really like andre Kurlenko. thanks again for listening to this episode of blazing the trail if you enjoyed this be sure to subscribe rate and review it goes a long way towards raising awareness for this series hey i don't make the rules here just the podcasts also Be sure to download the Basketball News app for notifications when new articles and podcast episodes come out from me and all my other great, wonderful coworkers at Basketball News. That about does it for me. I'll see you guys next time for the Sean Kemp episode. But in the meantime, be safe and have an awesome day.